American journalists and other lying sacks of crap are reeling with make-believe embarrassment after being caught out suppressing the fact that Donald Trump was right about the source of COVID-19, sometimes called the Chinese flu, or the Wu flu, or the flu shoe pork, or the Kung flu, or Universal Pictures presents the fast and furious death of millions of people worldwide while Comcast rakes in the yuan. Trump, as you'll remember, said the flu Manchu was probably created in a laboratory by a Chinese communist scientist who had an accident while performing perfectly legitimate experiments to discover which disease could best be used to wipe out Western civilization and ensure the destruction of the United States by Chinese communists so they could save the money they were going to pay Joe Biden to do it for them. To find out how our news media got this story so wrong, let's turn to Jonathan Carl, a sack of journalists who works for ABC News a company owned by the Disney Corporation, a company whose testicles are in turn owned by the Chinese government. In an interview given while laughing up his sleeve, Jonathan Sack of Carl said, quote, Me, oh my, I seem somehow to have missed this story about how a pandemic originated in the country where my employers make billions of dollars. Oh, ho, ho. I guess even Donald Trump was han, 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 han right about some things, like the fact that the Russian collusion story was a hoax. And Joe Biden's corrupt relationship with Ukraine should have been investigated. The accusations against Brett Kavanaugh were a fraud. Cutting taxes helps the economy. And the American press is a collection of lying sacks of crap run by corporations that are sunk up to their rotten hearts in Chinese coin. Next thing you know, we'll find out Trump was right about the election being stolen. Ha ha ha. Just kidding. I guess we sure do have egg on our faces. And I even have eggs in my shorts. But that's just a personal choice. Unquote. To improve reporting in the future, the Association of American Journalists and Other Lying Sacks of Crap, or AAJOLSC, has suggested some make-believe reforms so they can pretend this sort of quote-unquote mistake will take everyone by surprise when it inevitably happens again. According to the AAJOLSC, from now on, American journalists will wait until they have destroyed the career of a powerful Republican by suppressing the truth and spreading lies, and then produce smarmy think pieces and interviews about whether they should have been more objective, and then return to suppressing the truth and lying about Republicans. The Association for American Journalists and Other Lying Sacks of Crap hopes these reforms will convince Democrats and their fellow suckers to believe American journalists' ridiculous reporting while allowing journalists to remain lying sacks of crap so the AAJOLSC doesn't have to spend a lot of hard-earned yuan reprinting its letterhead. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, on we go, laughing our way through the fall of the Republic with your lovable host, the wandering spirit of Clavenon. Uh, if you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> the homeless, the, the son of Clavenon has nowhere to lay his head. I continue to be homeless, moving from one Airbnb to another until my new home is ready. I was in one Airbnb and the pipes burst. And so I had to, my wife and I had to pile all our uh, belongings into our car and move to a hotel and then all our belongings into a car and move to an Airbnb and then all our car- belongings into a car and move back to the Airbnb that was being repaired. Uh, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies with their jalopy with all their goods tied to it. 
but that's us. And if that doesn't, if that makes you feel sorry for me, then what I want you to do is go on iTunes and subscribe to the show and leave at the least. It's the least you can do. I mean, come on. It's the least you can do. Leave a five star review. It helps us a lot. Liz Wheeler explained this to me last week. This helps a lot with the ratings. I had no idea. But you also want to go on YouTube and subscribe to my personal channel. And if you leave a comment there and it's genuinely morally disgusting, we will read it on the air and it'll fit right in. From This comment uh, this week is from Candace Cullen Rivera, who says, I watched Shock to the System, a, uh, a very good movie that was based on the novel by Simon Brett, and I wrote the screenplay. She says, I watched Shock to the System a couple of weeks ago. Now I'm on a mission to watch and read everything Clavin has created besides great works of art. Hopefully it also con- constitutes my submission to Clavenon. And this is true. If you read my entire oeuvre, all my works together, the entire conspiracy will be clear if you know where to look for the facts. And then, you know, to to show that you understand what's going on, go on the other hosts, uh, YouTube channels, Knowles and Shapiro and Walsh, and just leave a little Clavenon uh, symbol there, maybe just a bald head uh, <laughs> with a K on it uh, or whatever you like, just to let them know that you are in, you are in with the, uh, with the Clavenon system. So if you would like your business to be a scene of chaos and self-destruction, you can hire the staff of The Andrew Clavin Show. But if you'd like it to run well, you want to use Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter is the smartest way to hire. When you post a job on Zip Recruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. It's no wonder over 2.3 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So, While other companies overwhelm you with way too many options, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for, that needle in the haystack that you need on the job. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. Once again, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire if, and only if you know how, to spell Clavin. It is K-L-A. There are no E's. So, In honor of the fact that it is now Gay Pride Month, I thought we would talk about sexual perversity. (laughs) Because sexual perversity, actually, this is a very serious topic, although I hope to uh, laugh disgustingly about it. But but still, what's going on, especially with the perversion or the attempts to pervert our children through the educational system, uh, is genuinely disturbing. I want to start with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. I believe this is a real quote. I traced it down. I haven't traced it down to its source, but I did trace it down to reliable sources. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, obviously a journalist and a Catholic apologist, and said, Every high civilization decays by forgetting obvious things. And the reason I want to start with that is because as I was thinking about this subject, because it's disturbing and some of the stuff you're going to hear is genuinely ugly and disgusting. And I was thinking, uh, what kind of sickness are are we having here? What, What has happened? Why have we broken down where we're trying to sell our children uh, this disorder, sexual disorder? Because, by the way, I'm not going to accuse people who practice this or that of being good or bad. That's not the point. But we know what sex is for. We know why we have a sexual urge. It has a purpose. It has a point. It is reproduction. It has a secondary point, which is establishing love between people. 
that is what it is for. So it is, there are many disorders. Of, it's a very powerful drive, and it's very easy for it to become disordered in people. But why are we teaching little children about this? Why are we teaching little children about the disorder before they've even come to terms with the purpose, the actual telos of sexuality? And obviously, it's to corrupt them. It's to destroy them in some way. And I thought, well, why, why have we gotten so sick? And then I realized, no, no, no. This is what people are like. This is what they're like, were like, before we established the kinds of values that made Europe and then this country great, slowly establishing those values over hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years, really, until we became what we are. So, you know, the left always thinks, the left calls themselves progressive, but they're the most regressive uh, people in on the planet, and they always think they're discovering new things, but what they're really doing is they're forgetting obvious things, all right? They're forgetting the things that made us who we are. There was a letter in the mailbag um, last week that I didn't get to answer. I will answer it this week in the mailbag section, but I just want to mention one thing about it. it the, the basic tenor of it was a lady who wrote in and said, I want to marry a man, but I'm also attracted to women. And I thought that's funny because I have a very similar problem. I married a woman, but I'm also attracted to every other woman, okay? (laughs) Because marriage is a thing we do which entails not doing other things, right? Every decision you make is a decision not to do other things. Now, the important thing is, and this is important for conservatives to understand, because conservatives are very Old Testament. They're always telling you what thou shalt not do. And for me, there is no such thing as thou shalt not unless you know why what it is you do want to do. I did not get married so that I wouldn't sleep with other women. Conservatives say this all the time. You know, we need people to get married so they'll control their sexual urges. I did not get married to control my sexual urges. I got married because I fell in love and I wanted the joy of making a life with someone and making new life with her as well. And having that joy entailed a full commitment to her, which meant the difficult task of not having other women in my life, even when I had the urge and the opportunity, right? We, when we make a decision, we're making the decision to do something. It is, we don't stop, we don't not do things just to not do them. I don't not drink. I mean, I would, I would love to drink. I would be, I would be smashed right this moment. If I drank all the time, I wanted to, but I don't drink all the time because I want to do the things I love and I want to do them well. I want to work and love people well. I want to do all the things you can't really do if you drink too much, so I drink less. And Christians, you know, this is a problem with Christians too. They talk a lot about sin. Don't do this. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. But when you listen, and that is Old Testament stuff, but when you listen to Jesus, he's always telling you what you should do, what you're trying to get to. And Paul talks about this. He talks about sexual immorality being a thing of the flesh. He talks about all the things that are, are, are what he calls the works of the flesh. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, says St. Paul. But we don't not do those things simply to not do them. They're not bad because they're bad because they're bad. They're bad because they block us from doing the things that give us joy, which Uh, Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which sounds like a better life to you, right? And these give you joy, and they also give you freedom. The things of the flesh feel good sometimes, but they enslave you ultimately. If you drink too much, if you don't take care of your sex life in, in in an orderly fashion, if you let your sex life become disordered, you become enslaved, right? That's the thing. And we want to be joyful, and we want to be free. And that's the thing we should be telling people about. Joy is the 
right's greatest weapon. Joy is, is conservatives' greatest weapon. It's not wagging our fingers, not telling people no, 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 no. The left is not doing that. The left is telling people, yes, they're saying you can have this, you can have that, you can have sexual pleasure, you can do it any way you want. They just don't tell you about the slavery part. What we want to tell people is we do things for joy and for freedom, right? I mean, some people think, oh, if I'm good, I go to heaven. That's not the way it works, right? The kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us, is within you, and what is within you is eternal. So you should be working on that now. You should be having the joy of life now. Joy is not happiness. Let's be clear about that. Joy is vitality and presence and saying, yes, it's another day, even when it's hard, even when there's grief, even when it's terrible. You are at least watching the movie of life with fascination and with interest. That's the kind of joy I'm talking about and the freedom to be who you were made to be. Not the freedom to do anything you want, but the freedom to be who you were made to be. So What I'm saying is that the right has a a vision of what a human being is and what a human being is like and what a human being is for, right? We We know or we think we know where the good lies in being a human being, where the joy and the freedom lies, and we want to teach that vision to our children, not to keep them safe, not so they won't do anything wrong, but to make, and not to make society good either. We want to make their lives joyful and free. That's what we want because we think, we believe, I believe that they will, if they are joyful and free now in their life, they will be joyful and free forever. That's the vision we have of what it means to be a human being. And that vision entails the idea that we're embodied creatures, right? Your body, a body doesn't make distinctions, right? My, your body wants all the sugar. <laughs> it doesn't just want, doesn't just want, you know, it, it would live at cinnamon bun, cinnamon bun, whatever that place is called, you know. It would be on the line to that place. Just get, you know, get to the end of the line, eat the bun, get back on the end of the line. That's what your body would do. It will drink all the alcohol. It will have all the sex. You know, there was a hilarious Facebook post. The left thinks it's discovering these things, but it's really just forgetting obvious things. This is true all the time. They think they're discovering anti-racism, but they're really just forgetting. They're just forgetting to love their neighbor. They're just forgetting non-racism. And that's what they're doing. And so they have this thing where this is Latif Taylor. He's a polymory inclusive intercourse educator. And we all need those. I mean, what would, I, good God, who needs another fireman or police officer? We need our polymory inclusive intercourse educators. And he talks about those preferring informal or nameless intercourse to repeated partner play have probably, in some unspecified time of their sexual journey, they've probably contended with the wrath of slut-shaming tradition because they're sluts. But it's just like, what does he call it? He calls it fray sexuality. It's like you just want to sleep with people anonymously. It's called being a man. That's what it's just they forgot. They're just forgetting the obvious things. But when you forget, when you forget, your body will go follow what I call the law of the extreme. You will go to extremes. The body always does this. You know, there are experiments they've done with moths, with spiders, you know, with all, with different animals, that if that moth is attracted to a female moth with dark wings and they dye a, a moth darker than any moth in real life, the male will then be attracted to that make-believe moth, a moth that doesn't exist in nature, but was created by human beings because our body makes no distinctions. It always goes to the extreme. You know, people who watch porn, and this is, this is something that happens to people who watch porn, they start off watching 
I don't know, you know, people having sex and they wind up watching people like beat the living crap out of each other because that's that's the extreme of sex. You know, you, you, you move into sadism, you move into masochism. Those are the things that happen. And, and this is something we naturally do. Right. I started out thinking, how am I going to talk about this? How am I going to explain the sickness that has taken over the left, especially how is it how going to explain the sickness of perverting children? But it's not sickness. It's normalcy. It is what the flesh does. This is what people were like. And the thing is, we're so rich. We're so safe. We think we're so rich. We think we're so safe that we have forgotten why we build these fences in the first place. We've forgotten that the joy of being free, the freedom of having joy, the society that you build that is a joyful, free society, all of those things require restraining yourself from doing other things, just like marriage, the joy of marriage, the joy of having a relationship with a woman require or a man requires you to be committed to that person. You don't not do things simply not to do them. You don't do them so you can do other better, more important things. You know, we don't realize how much of our vision of who we are and what we're supposed to do comes from Christianity. There's a wonderful book about this. In fact, we should have this guy on the show. Uh, Tom Holland's his name is. He wrote a book called Dominion. And Dominion discovers something that was very much a part of my journey to Christianity, which was how much of many of my values came from Christianity without my knowing it. And he talks about what sex was like before the Christian world. He talks about the ancient Roman world, right? And this is what he says, before Christianity Sex, I'm reading this from his book, Dominion. Sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior, to be marked as womanish, barbarian, servile, while the body of a freeborn Roman was sacrosanct, those of others were fair game. In Rome, Men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. In Latin, the same word meant both ejaculate and urinate. To the presumptions that underlay this, however, St. Paul brought a radically different perspective. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So he demanded of the Corinthians, Holland says, how, he said, how could any man knowing his limbs consecrated to the Lord think to entwine them with those of a prostitute and mingle his sweat with hers, become one flesh with her? But Paul, by proclaiming the body a temple of the Holy Spirit, was not merely casting a sacrilege attitudes towards sex that most men in Corinth or Rome took for granted. He was also giving to those who serviced them, the bar girls and the painted boys in brothels, the slaves they used without compunction. He was giving them a glimpse of salvation. If you watch monkeys, watch, look up macaque mon monkeys and see if they have, I don't know if they do, but see if they have uh, films of them on YouTube. The macaque monkey to show dominance and submission assumes sexual positions, even males. They don't even have to have sex with the other male monkey. He just gets in position for sex to show that he is submitting. The left is not inventing, discovering new things. They're forgetting obvious things. They're forgetting that we said we get it. This is what monkeys do. This is what humans naturally do. We get it. We're going against that nature. We're forming a new set of values that we believe comes from God. And that is where you start to think, you know, before the church, before the church, the idea that a man would be faithful in marriage, 
virtually didn't exist. That's a church invention. That's an invention of the Catholic Church. The idea that it, obviously a woman had to be faithful because you needed to know where her children were coming from. But a man, why should a man be faithful? And we all know what men are like. Why, why should it? This is a, an invention of the church. The kind of monogamy that we talk about, that we believe in in America, you know, is a built thing. It's a made thing. We made it from our relationship with God. The left is not discovering something new. They're forgetting something obvious that we made this thing. So we restrain our monkey selves, again, not as a purpose in ourselves. We do it to achieve joy, joy and freedom. Freedom and joy are the things that we on the right, and we as Christians, I think, too, are selling. We are not selling restraint. We are selling restraint because, restraint in aid of, restraint in aid of freedom and joy. And it's important that we teach our children this because the left also has a vision. And that's what I really want to talk about. The vision of the left, they have a vision too of what human beings are, and they're seeking to teach it not to their children, not to their children, not just to their children, but to your children and our children. And many of them don't have children themselves and still want to uh, teach these things to their children, a vision of what people are, which is flesh. Their flesh. The pleasure they have to get is the pleasure of sex. The pleasure they have to get is the pleasure of indulging the things, uh, the, the extremes that the flesh will go to. You know how in car advertisements, they always put a pretty girl in there, kind of suggesting that if you buy this car, you'll also get the girl? It's not the car. See, it's the fact that the guy who owns the car went to rockauto.com and not only went there, he said it like this. He said, rockauto.com. That is what does the trick. Rockauto.com is a family business that has always offers the lowest prices possible on car parts. It doesn't change prices according to what the market will bear. It is easier than walking down to the car parts store because your car is not running. You just have to go on your computer. It's a family business. They've served auto parts customers online for 20 years. And and when you use them, you get to say rockauto.com. That'll take you to a catalog that is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, and again, with reliably low prices. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin, and you got to do the same thing, Clavin, in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you, and I know what you're saying. How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There's a school in New York called the Dalton School. Maybe you've heard of it. It is when my kids were growing up, this was one of the schools we were considering when I realized that I was going to do anything I had to do to get my kids into private school because I didn't want them going to a public school. I took a look at the public schools. I thought I will sell my soul to get these kids <laughs> into private schools. Right. The probably the most expensive, or at least one of the most expensive, the Dalton School. This school costs 55 grand a year. It didn't back in my day, but it now costs $55,000 a year. So you know that this is two parents probably working very high level professional jo uh, jobs to make sure that their kids are in the elite. That's what these schools are for. And they found out that they were showing this cartoon video to first graders. Now, for those of you who don't have kids, a first grader is six, maybe seven years old. This is a little tiny kid. Here's an excerpt of this cartoon that was being shown to these six and seven-year-olds. Hey, how come my penis gets big sometimes and points up in the air? That's called an erection. Sometimes I touch my penis because it feels good. Sometimes when I'm in my bath or when mom puts me to bed, I like to touch my vulva too. You have a clitoris there, Kayla, that probably feels good to touch the same way Keith's penis feels good when he touches it. <laughs> So these parents shelling out $55,000 to make sure their kids know this because, you know, you don't need them to know math, reading, 
Come on. You know, what? You, how would you even have time? How would you have time for math or reading while you're too busy in the bath playing with yourself? The parents, for their $55,000 a year, thought they, for some reason, they had the right to complain. And they were told, oh, no, 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 no. You're misinterpreting this. This is just this health. It's from our health and wellness director, Justine Angfonte. Turns out this lady has also taught classes at the Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School, where she taught a porn literacy class. According to the New York Post, the often explicit slide presentation and lecture by Fonte to the 120 boys and girls included lessons on how porn takes care of three big male vulnerabilities. Statistics on the orgasm gap showing straight women have far fewer orgasms with their partners than gay men or women and photos of partially nude women, some in bondage to analyze what is porn and what is art. I mean, you know, you don't want to teach kids, you do not want to teach kids that sex is about relationships. You don't want to teach kids that it's about marriage. You don't want to teach kids that it's about producing children before you get around to whipping and all the other things that they're going to do. You know, before I came in here, I was talking to our uh, reporter, a very good reporter, Georgia Howe, and she sent me a video from a group called Protect Ohio Children, where they showed stuff that was coming home with their middle school children. Uh, They were coming home with flyers that direct them to experts in BDSM, which is bondage, discipline, sadism, and masochism, uh, using strap-ons, which I don't even want to describe to you, and uh, masturbation, all this. Middle school is 10 to 14. So these people are dedicated. These left is dedicated to teaching this to your kids. They're not saying, hey, this is something I want to do in my home with my kids. This is how I want to train my kids to be pervert, uh, perverts and, you know, crazy people and destroy their lives. No, they want your kids to learn this. And it's not just in the schools. Of course, of course not. Because remember, the left owns the culture. Why? Because nobody listens to Andrew. Nobody listens when I said, take back the culture. They own the culture. And so, of course, this is also stuff that is coming on TV. Blue's Clues. I mean, this is, to me, this is kind of heartbreaking because Blue's Clues was a cute little show. Uh, I believe it was on Nick Jr. Uh, And it was meant to teach like deduction. It was meant to teach critical thinking. Now they've got a drag queen cartoon. This is for your little kid. You probably don't even know your kid is watching this when you plant them in front of the TV so you can have a couple of snorts to get through the rest rest of the day. This is a cartoon drag queen uh, introducing a family waving rainbow flags. Hey, Blue. Look at all these families. Hi, families. It's time for a pride parade. Families marching one by one. Hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one. Hurrah, hurrah. This family has two mommies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the big Now, you have to remember, of course, anytime you hear the word pride used in this kind of formulation, it means shame. When people say black pride is because black people feel they've been made to feel ashamed. When gay people say gay pride is because they feel ashamed. That's why gay pride goes on for an entire month. Okay. Again, again, I am not condemning the people who practice these things. I'm condemning them for teaching disorder to people, to children, before children have learned the purpose of things, the meaning of things. If you say, hey, you know, the meaning of of sex is to be in a loving, stable, child-producing, child-rearing, creative relationship, uh, but sometimes this becomes disordered and sometimes people have to do other things and they have to make accommodations uh, to their desires. You know, it's one thing to be tolerant of a person. It is another thing to, to put disorder in front of order, especially when you are teaching my children. When you are teaching my children, your responsibility is 
to me. And of course, because of this law of extremes, because once you start to satisfy the flesh, the flesh has no distinctions. The flesh makes no distinctions. It wants more and more. You get to the point where you are a savage. You become a savage. This is a video of a woman named Dr. Joanna Olson Kennedy at a forum on transgenderism. She recommends that 13-year-olds have what is called euphemistically top surgery. That is butchering the breasts off little girls. That's what it is. It's cutting the breasts off little girls. And she says, oh, little girls can make this decision. Here's Joanna Olson Kennedy. Actually, people make life-altering decisions in adolescence. All the time. All the time. And honestly, most of them are good. It's just the bad ones that we talk about. Oh my God, the cinnamon challenge, right? I mean, why do we know about it? Because it's, it's a thing and it's, it's, not, it's not common. Like most teenagers aren't eating cinnamon, right? But some are and they're on YouTube and that's stupid. But we don't put on YouTube the things that are really good decisions, right? Oh my gosh, my kid took the SATs. Not a very exciting after school special, right? But so what we do know is that adolescents actually have the capacity to make a reasoned, logical decision. And here's the other thing about chest surgery. If you want breasts at a later point in your life, you can go and get them. And so she's lying, right? Because you can't have your breasts back once you cut them off. You know, a girl can't have her breasts. She can't get them. You can get a shape, the shape of your breasts back. They can do reconstruction surgery, but you're not going to be able to feed your baby with those breasts, and you're not going to have the same kind of, uh, you know, sensations in them or anything like that. She's, so she's just lying in order to push this savage view, this essentially uh, animalistic view that we should be cutting people up. And why women? Well, of course, it's always women. It's always women who are going to be on the short end of this stuff. It's always women who want to be destroyed. Why? Because they carry within them the nexus of pleasure and creativity. They carry within them the consequences of sex or the joy of sex, which is the telos, the, the point of sex, which is to have babies, right? I mean, scientists have been working around the clock on this for thousands of years, how to stop this from happening, how to stop women from being women, right? They do not like it because that means that their pleasure actually has consequences. You know, this is during the AIDS crisis, I, I always remember, I, it was just terrible. Many of my friends, many people I respected and, and thought very highly have died during the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Uh, you know, it affected mostly gay men and they were just being destroyed right and left and in, in horrible, horrible ways. But at the same time, the stories were coming out about what was happening in the bathhouses where they went. And I was sitting there, you know, with my eyeballs like that because I was talking about the idea of sleeping with 17 men in a night. I even remember, this is now 100 years ago, I remember that number. Uh, and I remember turning to one of my brothers and thinking, what, what on earth were they thinking? What were they thinking about? And my brother said, well, without women, who would say no? You know, and that's, of course, the truth. I mean, that's the story in a lot of ways of Sodom and Gomorrah, another story we should remember in Gay Pride Week, which is, you know, a, a, a town where when angels came to visit Lot, the people gathered around the house and rioted, shouting, send them out so that we can rape them. And Lot, because he didn't want to violate the uh, Hebrew rules of uh, hospitality, said, I, I would rather give you my virgin daughters than give you my guests. And they said, we don't want your daughters. Well, of course not. They didn't want consequences. They didn't want to be in involved in the telos of sex, it wasn't that they were gay. It was like, that's not how gay people mostly behave, right? You, I'm sure you know some gay people. They don't behave like that, screaming, send them out so we can rape them. You know, that's that's not the way they behave. What it was was they didn't want the consequences. It was just the flesh being doing what it does, which is moving to the extreme. And that, this is why the left detests women. They detest the loving wife and mother. They detest, and, and, you know, most surveys show that most women 
who have children would like to stay home. They might also want to work from home and do other things. Obviously, that's important. But I'm just saying that most women do not want to live the feminist lifestyle. They have been basically forced into it. And this is an important thing, okay? The important thing about this is this stuff is not optional. If you get in the way of this stuff, if you get in the way of this, these people trying to corrupt your children, they will try and stop you. At Dalton, uh, that the school I was talking about before, one of the protesting mothers told the New York Post, we were horrified to learn that this masturbation cartoon was shown to our first grade six and seven-year-old kids without our knowledge or consent, but it's so hard to fight back because you'll get canceled and your child will suffer. So I have a dream that one day I will actually have a home again. <laughs> when I do have a home, I'm going to get me another ring. I'm going to put a ring on my new house like I had on my old house because a ring is an affordable way to install indoor and outdoor cameras and security that you want. To get a ring alarm for yourself, go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. It's a perfect way to start your ring experience. The thing that is great about ring, aside from being a powerful asset for your home, ring is also an affordable whole home security system you can easily install yourself. It means whoever comes to your door, whenever they come and wherever you are, you will be able to talk to them right on an app on your phone and see them as well. With Ring, your family can keep an eye on your home no matter where you are and right from your phone. Start protecting your home today and dream about the day I'll be able to protect my home with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash Clavin to get your Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your house, wherever you are, you can say to him, how do you spell Clavin? And he'll say, uh, K-L-A-V-A-N. You go, right. And then Duh. chase them away. Here's a, I, I mean, if, if you think corruption is comical, which it is until you f- factor in the pain, here's a, a wonderful story from Loudoun County, Virginia, right? A school district in Loudoun County, Virginia. They had a policy uh, called 8040 and 8350, um, which would require teachers to refer to students by preferred gender pronouns rather than the pronouns that corresponded to their actual genders. So they had a school board meeting. And they invited public comment. And public comment includes anybody, including the teachers who work for the school. And an elementary school PE teacher got up. His name was Tanner Cross. And this is what he said. This is cut 16. My name is Tanner Cross, and I'm speaking out of love for those who suffer with gender dysphoria. 60 Minutes this past Sunday interviewed over 30 young people who transitioned, but they felt led astray because lack of pushback or how easy it was to make physical changes to their bodies in just three months. They are now detransitioning. It's not my intention to hurt anyone but there are certain truths that we must face when ready. We condemn school policies like 8040 and 8035 because it will damage children, defile, defile the holy image of God. I love all of my students, but I will never lie to them regardless of the consequences. I'm a teacher, but I serve God first, and I will not affirm that a biological boy can be a girl and vice versa because it's against my religion, it's lying to a child, it's abuse to a child, and it's sinning against our God. Good man, good man. So they suspended him. We invite all your comments. You're fired. <laughs> He's suing. He'll probably win, too. But he invited him to a public forum to express his opinions. And he expressed his opinion. Get out. <laughs> this is not optional. This is not optional. They know 
they're doing wrong, right? When you when you know you're doing wrong, you got to stop people. This is why they take books off Amazon. This is why they knock people off Twitter. They know they're lying. They know they're lying. You do not censor people when you're telling the truth. You censor people when they are telling the truth, and that's what's happening now. Here's another example. I just love these because they're so corrupt. You know, they're corrupt that they, you know, corruption is funny because we're meant to be something better. Corruption, is, the, the humor of corruption is the fact that we were born to be better, but we live in a original sense or like we're like a guy in a tuxedo who falls in a puddle of mud. This is uh, on May 6th. This is the Gresham Barlow School Board in Gresham, Oregon, right? They updated the district's flag displays and salute policy to reflect the progressive values of the board, right? The proposal would require the school board to provide an American flag, a pride flag, and a BLM flag for each classroom. And they were supposed to be all be the same. The U.S. flag and the pride flag were supposed to be the same. Look, they're doing this all over. America has put up pride flags and BLM flags, even at the Vatican, even at our uh, consul- consulate to the Vatican, or embassy to the Vatican, which is incredibly offensive to the the Catholic Church. But they have this one lady at the board objected, saying, why make this mandatory? Why are you making this mandatory? And the woman who answers her, that's who you'll hear first, but the woman who answers her is a woman named Robin Stowers, right? So the first woman says, why are we going to make this mandatory? And I want you to listen to Robin Stowers' reply. Cut two. How is putting this in the classroom with teachers that are not ready with students that want to ask questions or maybe don't, how is this going to change if we say you have to do this? Anything that's done where it's mandatory feels like I don't have a choice to learn and find out about it. And Learning is always your choice, Chris. And we've already had these discussions and I refuse to re-educate you over and over and over again. You need to do your work. (laughs) You know, she talks about how she's getting these racist emails. People don't hate her because of her race. They hate her because she's a tyrant. She hates her because she's oblivious to her own arrogance and pride. Oh, I don't have to re-educate you to the fact that I'm right. You know, it's always a choice for you to learn that I'm right. You know, this is this is not optional. This all comes down. It all comes down. And the reason and the reason it is an offense to Christians is it all comes down from the materialist Marxist philosophy, from Maoism. I want you to listen to just one more thing in this, because I, I, you've got to understand that if you don't fight back the culture war, this is the culture war. The culture war is the war. And I'm going to deal with that in just a minute. Because this is something the Republicans are going to have to learn. They're going to have to learn it from Donald Trump. But Alicia Garza is a was a co-founder of the Marxist uh, bully group Black Lives Matter. Right? It's it's a Marxist. It's not. A, I don't know if it's a terrorist group, but it's a violent Marxist radical group called Black Lives Matter with a great name. Okay, and she made this speech. Uh, in 2016, it was gotten by the National Pulse. The National Pulse came up with it exclusively. Right. And you're going to hear her say something about a thousand flowers bloom. So just so you know, this is a Mao Zedong, the greatest uh, mass murderer in, in human history, Mao Zedong, who said at one point when his communist insanity wasn't working, he said, well, let's let everybody talk about it. What he really said is let a hundred flowers bloom. But what he meant, he said, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. He wanted everybody to come forward with ideas. That lasted about a year. And then he killed them all. He had them all arrested. He destroyed them. Anybody who came forward who bloomed, anybody bloomed, got hit by the Mao law. More, okay, so it's like, oh, great, we can speak now. You're dead. That's what it was. So listen to what she's talking about, about how she's going to teach her Marxist ideas, her Maoist ideas, uh, and whether people can respond or not. This generation understands that to enact meaningful policy change, 
we must equally value the role that culture change plays. Said more simply, the battle to win hearts and minds does not happen at the policy table. It is the work that is necessary to ready the ground for new agreements about how we interact with one another. Now the last few years has given us lots to consider about how change happens, what type of change we seek, and what gets in the way of us obtaining the type of change we deserve. To be clear, this movement is not just engaged in an external struggle, but also in an internal one as we seek to clarify what is it that we stand for and what is it that we stand against. We too are navigating the tension between allowing a thousand flowers to bloom while at the same time distinguishing between what are flowers and what are in fact weeds that threaten to consume the entire ecosystem. <laughs> you got that? So let a thousand flowers bloom up, oh, you're a weed. We got to pull up those weeds. We got to pull up those weeds. Tanner Cross, thank you for your opinion. You're fired. You know, <laughs> just, you know thanks for your opinion. We're putting you in prison. Thanks for your opinion. We're going to drop a cinder block on your head. These guys know, they know in their heart of hearts what they are. They know exactly what they're doing in their heart of hearts. They may not know it consciously, but they, everybody who, who basically lives into the flesh knows exactly what he's doing, knows exactly what's pulling them there and who's pulling them there. And all of them, all of them have to silence the voice. If one person, if you say, I'm, I'm decided that I'm a woman and one person says you're not, it's like the emperor's clothes, suddenly you're naked. And that's the problem. That's why they've got to silence everybody. So when I say this is the war, here's the reason I say this, okay? Paul Ryan made a speech at the Reagan Ranch, uh, the, no, the Reagan Library, I'm sorry. He made a speech at the Reagan Library. And he basically, he gave Trump some credit saying we accomplished a lot during the Trump years. But then he said this to the Republican Party. He's all about finances, all about, you know, Reaganism and all this. And he said this, cut 12. If we fail this test, it will be because the progressive left will have won by default. It will be because the conservative cause, which has been the protector of our great American creed, lost its way and followed the left into the trap of identity politics, defining itself by resentments instead of by ideals. It will be because we mistake reactionary skirmishes in the culture wars with a coherent agenda. It will be because we gave too much allegiance to one passing political figure and weren't loyal enough to our principles. See, the thing that Paul doesn't, and I, I, and I like Paul Ryan, and the reason I like Paul Ryan is he took on entitlement in order to cut the debt when no Republican would do that. Trump wouldn't do it. Trump said, I'm not going to cut entitlements, which is one of the most important things we can do. And Paul Ryan had the guts to do it, but he failed. And the reason he failed is because he was pointing at charts with a, a pointer and explaining the debt to people. And the Democrats were making videos of Paul Ryan pushing old women off a cliff. They understand that the culture war is the war. Joe Biden is proposing a $6 trillion budget. I mean, it's just an insane amount of money he wants to spend. And one of the things it does is it installs guaranteed childcare. Well, now we know, if you've been listening to me for the last half hour, now you know what they're going to be teaching your child while you're free to work. Nobody ever says, oh, moms need help. So therefore, we're going to give them some respect and make sure their husbands are being paid enough so that they can take care of them. They never say that. They say that government has to provide childcare. Why? Because once the government provides childcare, they got you. Then they can teach you all the stuff they want. They can teach you exactly how to masturbate, how to build a whip. That was one of the things that was being taught in Ohio, how you can build a whip so you can uh, punish yourself and punish your lover. Uh, you know, they'll be teaching you all that stuff. 
The culture is where you teach people, no, no, I take care of my kids. We educate our kids. The government doesn't do it. The guy who understands this, and I know this is another guy that a lot of Trump people don't like, but I like him a lot, Bill Barr. The reason I like him a lot is because everybody hates him. When everybody hates you on all sides, you know, especially in politics, and especially in politics today, you know you're probably going down a good road. Bill Barr made this speech. He won an award a cat from a Catholic society, and he talked about education, and this is what he says is cut seven. This indoctrination in my right, in, in my mind, is the greatest uh, threat that religious liberty faces today. We're rapidly approaching the point, if we already haven't reached the point, at which the heavy-handed enforcement of secular progressive orthodoxy through government-run schools is totally incompatible with traditional Christianity and other major religious traditions in our country. And in light of this development, I think we have to confront the reality that it may no longer be fair, practical, or even constitutional to provide publicly funded education solely through the vehicle of state-operated schools. That's right, school. And what he says is that he thinks that vouchers that give people school choice are the answer. Those are cut eight. In this environment, vouchers may be the only workable and the only constitutional solution. And they would promote diversity in education. You know, the left talks about diversity. They are not for diversity. They're for standardization. Diversity is freedom. Diversity is the ability to live your life and to hold views that may not be compatible with the, with the dominant cultures. It's freedom. And we stand for diversity. And there's nothing to fear from diversity. There's nothing to fear from schools that parents set up for the education of their children. You know, vouchers are good and school choice is important. And I think it's a battle that we have been fighting and winning and losing uh, for years. But the most important thing, I'll show you the most important thing. This took place at Carmel School Board. Now, I used to be a reporter in Carmel. This was my beat. Uh, it's Carmel, New York. It's what's called downstate New York. It's not quite upstate, but it's not New York City. Uh, it's about 100 miles north of New York City. And this lady got up and started to give it to the school board because they were teaching this critical race theory, which is just racism. It's all it is. It's anti-white racism. And she went after them and they did this thing where they, that they call tone policing. You know, we don't like the way you're talking. You know, it's I don't mind listening to your ideas. They mind listening to your ideas or else they wouldn't have suspended the PE teacher. Of course they mind. They mind or else they wouldn't be screaming. I don't want to reeducate you again and again. But they say it's just it's just your tone. It's just your tone. And she just blasted them. This is worth listening to. This is a mom in Carmel, New York at a school board meeting. Cut 22. Can we not let the public speak? Why can't we let the public know that you're teaching our children to go out and murder our police officers? Do you want the proof? I have the proof. Is that what scares you? The proof that a parent actually standing up against all of you? Is that what scares you to call out the names of these people? You work for me. I don't work for you. You have a duty. We are entrusting our children to you. We teach our children morals, values, when they grow up to commit crimes and end up in prison and kill a police officer. It's our fault? No, it's your fault. You're emotionally abusing our children and mentally abusing them. You're demoralizing them by teaching them communist values. This is still America, ma'am. And as long as I'm standing here on this good ground earth of God, I will fight. And I'm not, this is not the last of me you will see. I'm retired.
I have nothing else better to do. <laughs> That's right. She's an at-home mom, see? She's not taking Joe Biden's uh, child care, so she has time to go and protect her kids. You know, men will die to protect women. You know why? Because women protect everything else. Because women build everything else. Because women create what we are and what we have, and they will defend it to the death. They will throw their bodies in front of their children. They will throw themselves in front of these stupid school boards. This woman's not afraid of being canceled, like the lady at Dalton is afraid of. You know, the women at Dalton, the people the people at Dalton have put so much money and so much effort into turning their kids into the elite. They don't want to elite lose that elite status. But this is the elite. This is the elite. These twisted, sick people who have forgotten. They have forgotten the obvious things. I mean, this is the thing. They think they're progressive, but they're regressive. They think they're discovering new things, but they're just forgetting the old things, the old things that made this civilization the greatest civilization that has ever been on the planet and this country, the greatest country that has ever been on the planet. They are taking it apart, by not by going forward, not by progressing, but by going backward to where we were when we started, because we're so rich, we're so safe, we're, everything is so, we're so powerful that we think that the gods of the copybook headings can't come back with fire and sword, but they can, and they always do. They always do. Every great civilization dies by forgetting the obvious thing, and that's what they're seeing, and they want to make sure that your children forget it too. The culture war is the war because everything else, everything else comes out of that. You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing A Quiet Place 2. I loved the first one. I was twisted in knots. It was so tense. That post-apocalyptic world. But of course, the whole thing could have been so much better if they had only had Ready Wise Foods. It's true. With Ready Wise Foods, you got to eat them quietly, right? So those big things don't come and bite your head off. But with Ready Wise Foods, you can get emergency meals. You can get freeze-dried fruits and vegetables for convenient on-the-go nutrition. You can even get new adventure meals for hiking, camping, and other outdoor activities. The world does not have to end for you to get Ready Wise Food. But if it does end, you'll be prepared with nutritious meals shipped directly to your doorstep after you order them online. When government resources are strained, it can be days, if not weeks, before fresh food is available. Don't put yourself in a situation where you need food during an emergency. Prepare today. This week, my listeners can get 10% off at readywise.com when entering Clavin at checkout or by calling 855-474-4084. ReadyWise has a 30-day, no-questions-asked return policy. There's no risk in taking the initiative to get you and your family prepared today. That's ReadyWise, R-E-A-D-Y-W-I-S-E dot com. Promo code CLAVEN to get 10% off. And I know what you're saying. Sure, ReadyWise, but how do you spell CLAVEN? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no I just make it look easy. All right. It has been way too long since we have had Jenna Ellis on. She barely needs an introduction because if you are a listener or watcher of this show, you have seen her a million times. But she has a new podcast, which you may not know is Just the Truth, which is excellent. It's really good. It has great guests like me. And well, that's all you need to know. It has me on it. So it's like absolutely terrific. Uh, but she's great. She is a constitutional scholar. She is the author of, well, wait, let me make sure I've got the name right. It is the author of uh, The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, which is really interesting. I read she's a fellow with the Falkirk Center at Liberty University and one of Donald Trump's legal team. Jenna, are you there? I am. So great to see you, Drew. Thanks for having me again. It's good to see you too, although I can't quite see you yet. Maybe take down that uh, intro and I'll I'll be able to see you. Uh, So 
You are, uh, and I was always, I was always very proud of you for this. You were one of the very few people on Trump's legal team, if not the only person on Trump's legal team, who actually did not go insane. Uh, they had, you know, people with all these kinds of uh, conspiracy theories about the election. Uh, you know, all these really strange ideas about how the election might have been thrown. But you stuck to the legal argument, and so I want to talk to you. I want what I really want to talk to you about is election integrity. But remind us of what your argument was when you were fighting. Uh, over the election. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And all of my advice to the president while I worked for him and then also even currently has always been within the margins of the U.S. Constitution because as Americans, we all agree or should agree that we live under the rule of law. And even if the Democrats completely want to ignore the Constitution, we are principled Americans. And so during the aftermath of the November 3rd election, before the Electoral College met and voted and was accepted by Congress on January 6th, that was our time frame to have the state legislatures under Article 2, Section 1.2, reclaim their authority for the manner in which the delegates were selected. The state legislatures completely failed, and the courts failed to require the state legislatures to do their job. What I advocated for, what our legal theory was at the time, uh, was that the state legislatures needed to not allow the certifications that were based on lawless actions of the executive branch administrators of the elections to be sent to Congress and the slates of delegates from six states to be given to Biden. That did happen. The state legislatures refused to intervene. They allowed those certifications to be presented to Congress. And under 3 USC 5, which is our Electoral Count Act, it, those certifications were presented. They were read and accepted by Congress. The Electoral College voted. That is our process for selecting a president of the United States. And so even though we all know there was extreme lawlessness, there was fraud, there was abuse, I agree, it was rigged, it was terrible. I was an advocate on the front lines. Once the election, uh, once the Electoral College voted, that's it. The only way that Joe Biden could be removed now as president is through the impeachment and conviction process and then the 25th Amendment, which outlines the line of succession for the presidency, would be triggered. So there's no way uh, now to go back and undo the Electoral College because that actually happened according to our constitutional process. You know, this is I mean, this is why I love talking to you. You came on. I remember you came on the show at the time and said it. You cannot put a car back together once it's been disintegrated after an accident. Uh, you were very honest with people and people get really upset about this. And I I argued at the time that it was one of the reasons we lost Georgia, which lost uh, us a majority uh, in the Senate. And now I'm hearing these things and I don't know how true these are. You, you talk to Trump. I don't. And, but, you, you know, I'm hearing these things where Trump believes uh, this was reported yesterday that Trump believes that he is going to be reinstated uh, after after the votes are recounted, according to the famous reinstatement clause in the Constitution, which comes right between the right to an abortion and the separation of church and state, because there's no provision for this at all. I mean, do you think this is true? Do you think that Trump is actually counting on being reinstated? Well, there are some people who uh, are part of, you know, the far right that are claiming this. And you're absolutely right to say that this is just as much reading into the Constitution as what the left has done on every social issue since 1965. And so as principled Americans, we don't read into the Constitution. We don't try to manipulate it when it is so clear that the only way that a sitting president can be removed is through the impeachment and conviction process. And then the 25th Amendment line of succession 
triggers, that's that's the entire ballgame. And so what we have to focus on moving forward, and I understand everyone's extreme frustration with what happened in November, but we have to move forward and say, okay, we need to learn from what happened and we need to make sure to protect our elections for the future so that this never happens again. The entire responsibility is on the state legislatures that failed to do their job. And you're right, Drew, I was very honest with the American people. I've always been very honest with President Trump. We had a really, really short window. We did the best we could. And now moving forward, we're gonna continue to do the best we can, but this is going to rely, again, solely on the state legislatures. And if we don't get election security by 2022, it's going to, again, be the fault of the state legislatures. So let's talk about this, because one of the things that's happening in the country is that people are losing faith in our institutions. And one of the reasons they're losing faith in our institutions is because our institutions stink. And I think this is, this is you know, it's a, it's a real problem because you don't, it's not a good thing for us to lose faith in our institutions. But our elite, our governing classes are mediocre and they're really doing a bad job and they've lost uh, track of what the American point is. So what's the move? What is what is a responsible move? I mean, look, we have to continue to win elections. We have to continue to make our arguments. We have to continue to be in the media. But what should we be doing that will protect our election system in the future so we can at least have faith that our voices can be heard? Well, we have to have faith in our rule of law. The Constitution is fine. It's the people who are in power right. that are not fine. Yeah. Our republic is fully sound. And I am sick and tired of people going on social media and saying, well, just because the Democrats are cheating, well, why should we follow the Constitution? That's absolutely absurd. We are principled Americans. The Constitution is fine. We just need to require that the state legislatures abide by it. So the simplest way is for the state legislatures to actually go back to the original intention of the Electoral College design. They have since 18. 24, when a majority of the states delegated their authority to certify the electoral delegates to the Electoral College, uh, then they need to reclaim that authority. And so simple legislation that requires the state legislatures to reconvene in special session after a presidential election or after any election, and they have to themselves certify the results would be a very simple fix. We also need to do away with any sort of ballot harvesting. We need to make sure that voter ideas is uh, required. We need to make sure that um, we have security measures, like no mail-in ballots that are ripe for fraud, like signature matching. All of these things are for election security, and we need to completely rebut the ridiculous notion that it's somehow racist to call for election security. Every person, regardless of your party or candidate you support, should agree that free and fair elections matter and that the American people deserve to have confidence that our elections are secure. Otherwise, we're no better than these mediocre countries that just install their own candidates and pretend they have elections. You know, you make a really good point about the fact that uh, people on the right are frustrated. That it's legitimate that they're frustrated. I understand why they're frustrated. But we're the good guys. We have to, we have to protect the Constitution. If we're not protecting the Constitution, there is no Constitution because we know the left's not going to protect it. They don't even like it. I mean, they don't even like the country. It's very weird to run to run it to... Uh, try to be elected to run a country that you hate, but they keep doing that. But we have to be the good guys. So it's a little harder for us. It's a little bit more of an uphill climb. You have, you started a commission, right? Am I right about this? That I know that you and Zeb Gorka and a couple of other people have formed a commission. What do you, what do you do exactly? 
Yeah, so this is the Election Integrity Alliance, and it's a project of the American Greatness Fund. You can go to americangreatnessfund.com to learn about it. And basically what we're doing is trying to provide these common sense solutions by having a centralized hub of allies. There are so many organizations across the country, like the Heritage Foundation, um, the American Principles Fund. I mean, so many different organizations that are doing really great work, and we're all on the same side here. But the American people want to know what's going on, and they want to know what are the key states, uh, what are we doing, what are the legislative measures, uh, the litigation that's ongoing. So we are trying to provide a centralized hub of allies so that we can all get on the same page. Because Ronald Reagan said we could accomplish so much more if we didn't care who got credit. I think every conservative needs to come together and support election integrity measures and champion all of these efforts, regardless of who is actually accomplishing the work. So what we're doing is providing media amplification. We're also providing common sense solutions. And again, you can go to americangreatnessfund.com. We're talking to Jenna Ellis, of course. Her podcast is just the truth. It really is good. It's really uh, excellent podcast, but you can tell that just by listening to her. Um, the, the, as opposed to this, as opposed to protecting electors, uh, election integrity, uh, we have the Democrats trying to pass a bill called H.R. 1. And I, it's passed the House, and they're having some trouble. They want to deal with it this month in the Senate, but they're having some trouble getting the backing that they need, and they certainly don't have the backing with the filibuster that they need. Can you explain what exactly is in H.R. 1? Well, H.R. 1 is essentially trying to federalize uh, elections, and this is completely against the U.S. Constitution. And so, again, when we talk about preserving and protecting our system, a system of government is like any other system where it's designed with a specific goal in mind. And so the design of our system is to give the state legislatures the authority to create election law. And so what H.R. 1 is trying to do is make Washington in control of the country. That is not our design. We can't federalize our elections. And so the Democrats are trying again to take power away from the states, give it to themselves in an unconstitutional manner, and to basically hold you and I as voters hostage to their will. I am hopeful that the filibuster will remain in place. I don't think that the Democrats have the support they need in the Senate, but we as Americans have to call on our Congress members and now everyone in the Senate and say, absolutely not. Again, we're principled constitutionalists, and H.R. 1 fails every single constitutional test. You know, it is funny because I, I'm reading all this stuff like in, um, I think it's in Arizona, they're doing a, a survey of the votes and they're looking, I read, I, read the, I don't know how many, many of these things are true, but they're looking for bamboo, traces of bamboo, because they believe that the Ch Chinese send in 40,000 votes and all this. And instead of, instead of doing stuff like that, which is Looney Tunes, you know, it might be a good idea to, to call your senator, to call your congressman, to make them let them know, you know, that you're watching them, that you will not uh, accept this. The Constitution does say, right, that that the federal government can has some jurisdiction over state elections, does it not? I mean, the, the federal government is allowed, for instance, to say that you have to let 18 year olds vote. Well, so uh, the federal government in terms of Congress, Congress has no role other than to count the electoral uh, college delegates. So they have no role in elections. And what was so interesting, Drew, is when I and Rudy Giuliani went to these state legislatures, they had no idea their constitutional authority here. And so what happened was, was actually a, a Michigan state legislator asked me a question that I thought was really brilliant. And I answered it because he, uh, he asked, well, what do we do now and what do we do in the future? Well, what they could have done now or then 
is completely foreclosed. We can't cure 2020 in the manner and method that some really, really desire. And again, I understand yeah. uh, the desire to correct that. What we have to do for the future is to make sure that the federal government stays out of state elections. They cannot claim through legislation a power that is textually granted to state legislatures. The other thing that's right, I mean, it's, it's just amazing when the left uh, loses elections, they want to get rid of the Electoral College. When they lose the majority in the Supreme Court, they want to pack the court. When they lose the argument, they want to silence free speech. They just have no capacity to just say, hey, you know, this is a free country. Sometimes we lose the game. One of the things that is uh, is happening is this genuinely like mafia style in attempts to intimidate uh, the Supreme Court and to intimidate the Congress uh, about the Supreme Court by threatening to pack the court. Uh, well, first of all, I should just ask you, how, how real do you think that is? How dangerous a, a possibility is that? Um, it is it is possible, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. so the so the Constitution doesn't provide for um, a specified number of justices on the Supreme Court. I actually agree with 1983 Joe Biden, who said it's a bonehead idea because the judicial branch needs to be independent. The separation of powers is for a reason. But if the Democrat majority wants to change the Judiciary Act and create new seats and pack the court, that is something that would be constitutionally viable, even though from a policy perspective, of course it's a bad idea. <laughs> I like the way when you mention Joe Biden's opinion, you have to give a, a date and time because <laughs> you need to right? know which opinion it is at any given moment. So one of the best things about the Donald Trump presidency, if not the best thing, was the appointment of what was a three Supreme Court uh, justices and a, a new conservative majority. Just speaking generally for a minute, how are you feeling about this court so far? Well, I think it's really fascinating uh, to see that they've actually had um, a couple of nine to zero opinions just in the last few weeks. And mm. why haven't those been in the news? Well, yeah. because that destroys the narrative that this is a purely partisan divided court. Uh, so I think that, again, the republic is actually doing better than the mainstream media would uh -huh. say that it is. We don't like Joe Biden. Uh, but this particular court is doing its job. And we do have a conservative originalist majority that hopefully will continue to interpret the Constitution based on the rule of law, even in the hot button issues like abortion and like uh, church cases and religious liberty, for example. And so um, I think Trump's greatest legacy from his first term will be those three Supreme Court justices, as well as over 200 federal judges on the bench. And we can't be like the Democrats and be uh, and basically be sore losers. And yes, I agree that the election was lawless and that it was taken, but we can't say we're going to put Trump back by any means possible. That's just not what a principled American does. And so we have to also then have a principled moral high ground to stay on, to say, no, we fully disagree with packing the court because we've had a liberal majority. There are times that we'll have a conservative majority or a liberal majority. That doesn't mean we change our system and our design based on partisan political whims. That's the entire reason the founders separated powers and why our constitutional structure is brilliant. You know, it, it is funny. People should know because, you know, one of the ways that uh, conservatives, I think, get ratings and things is by causing a lot of uh, panic. But people should remember that even with the court that we had before, Obama set a record for nine zero uh, decisions against him for government overreach. I mean, that was he you know, that was his big record. I thought, <laughs> thought like so that was actually pretty good. Speaking of abortion, there is an abortion case coming up before the court. 
Uh, well, first, can you tell us what it is? And oh, then I'll ask you about it. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, this case, I think, actually has a really good uh, opportunity for the court to uh, reverse the fundamental holding of Roe versus Wade. And so the question is whether um, it is unconstitutional for state legislation uh, to uh, to decline um, to have an abortion uh, that is beyond the point of viability. And so when uh, when you look at the certified question here, the question about abortion is basically saying, is this a state issue? And so when uh, the Supreme Court is looking at this, I think it's very fascinating that the current composition of the court has actually taken up this case. And that to me is very hopeful that they are going to give this issue back to the states at minimum. And we have to remember that this whole idea, this leftist talking point, that Roe versus Wade is settled law or that there is a constitutional right to abortion. That's completely not true. The Roe holding itself simply said uh, and set up this, what they called the undue burden test, which is um, that the government's compelling interest in protecting life has to be weighed against a individual's right to privacy in some abortions in some circumstances. Mm. As we've had medical advances, as we understand more and more what the truth of God actually has told us from the very beginning, that life begins at conception, that a human being, no matter how small, is a living human being, then as the science reflects that, we're now revisiting uh, at what stage the uh, even this privacy, this so-called privacy issue should attach and should override, and I think it never should after conception, the government's compelling interest in protecting life. So um, this is not a federal constitutional settled question. This should go back to the states and allow states to determine their own law concerning this issue. And I really have a lot of faith and confidence in our Supreme Court, I hope I'm right, that uh, they will hold a very strong opinion to that effect. Wow, okay. Uh, last question I've got to ask. I mean, I know you you talk to Trump sometimes. Uh, I know you're also his lawyer, so your conversations are confidential. Uh, but if you had to guess, do you think he's going to get back into politics or do you think he's uh, going to play this some other way? Well, I think he's uh, never really left politics. Well, yes. So, I mean, he's going to have a big speech uh, from North Carolina tomorrow. I think he's going to, um, you know, be very clear, as he always does uh, with Trump. But I think he's um, he's definitely looking forward to 2024. And um, I do speak with him still quite frequently. And I know that uh, his concern is always what it has been from the very beginning when he decided to run in 2016, which is that he cares about America and putting America first. And those are the policies that the overwhelming majority of Americans that did vote for him in 2016 and 2020, what we believe in. We want to make sure that our country is on the right track. And I think that President Trump is never going to concede that fight. And he's never going to simply step aside and say, well, I'll let somebody else uh, take it from here. I think that he will always be a frontline advocate for America. All right. I'm going to let you dodge that question because I know you can't, can't answer it. But Jenna, it is great to see you. Uh, Just the Truth is the podcast. It's always wonderful talking to you, and I hope we'll do it again soon. Great to see you too, Jerry. Thanks. Mike. You know, whenever anybody asks me if I need a hearing aid, I always say the same thing. Huh? What? What? <laughs> because my hearing is getting worse. But you know, hearing aids cost a lot. Uh, 
average price of a hearing aid in America is over $2,400 a pair, unless you get one of these babies, an MD hearing aid. These are about $299.99 each. When you buy a pair, it's 300 bucks each. When you buy a pair, a lot less expensive. MD hearing aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. Their sleek design fits so well, no one will know you're wearing it. Plus, it's rechargeable with battery life that lasts up to 30 hours. If you forget to take your hearing aids off in the shower or something, sounds like that's the kind of thing I would do. Don't worry. The Volt Plus is waterproof in up to three feet of water. It's time to reclaim your life from hearing loss. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code CLAVEN to get their buy one, get one, $299.99 each offer. Plus, they are adding a free extra charging case, a $100 value just for listeners of The Andrew Claven Show. So head to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code Claven, or you can even call them at 1-800-614-3051. That's 1-800-614-3051. I know you're asking, how do you spell Claven? But I can't hear you because I'm not wearing my MD hearing aid. So if you look around, you may have noticed lately that society has taken a turn for the authoritarian. There's censorship, critical race theory, a crumbling economy, our leaders' insatiable appetite for control. Well, you're not alone in noticing this. In fact, you're so not alone that Ben Shapiro wrote an entire book about it. The book is called The Authoritarian Moment, and in it, Ben gives some background on how we got here and tips on fighting back. If you're an American who knows what it means for our future as a free country, it's time to read up on the truth in order to stand up to the woke. The Authoritarian Moment is now available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other major bookseller. I love this idea. When it comes to exposing the left for the illogical propagandists they are, the guy you want on the job is Ben Shapiro. If you want to hear him do it in 15 minutes or less, so he must be talking slow, then you're in for a treat because every Saturday an audio episode of his new series, Debunked, is dropping. Daily Wire members can get the full 10-episode first season over at dailywire.com. If you're not already a member, you can get 20% off today with code Debunked while the discount lasts. Tomorrow, the audio episode on pro-abortion propaganda drops where Ben destroys the left's moral and scientific reasoning for abortion and discusses why a life begins at conception. Check it out tomorrow on his podcast feed over at Apple, Spotify, or whatever your platform of choice may be. So there, there was another letter I got uh, that I actually answered in the mailbag last week. I think it was the last question I answered uh, was, uh, was about... The experience of Christianity, the experience of becoming a Christian, as you know, I became a Christian very late in life. Uh, I was 49 by the time I uh, was baptized, but it made a tremendous difference in my life. And I was talking about that last week, about uh, the fact that a, a few weeks after being baptized, my wife turned to me and said, you've completely changed. You're suddenly serene. You're in a totally different place. Uh, and I was, and I continued to, and I have continued to be. But one of the things is that has never happened to me, and some Christians have written to me to tell me that without this, I'm not really a Christian, which is nonsense. But uh, some people have written to tell me, you know, that you have to have this experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, uh, and you are suddenly transformed, and you have this powerful emotional uh, uh, conversion. Uh, every movie, if you uh, know, I don't know if you know this, but every Christian movie has to have that scene in it. It has to have a conversion scene in it. And and for me, that's not the way it worked. For me, it was a logical process where I got to the point where I, as I said to Jordan Peterson the other day, uh, you know, where 
faith was simply a matter of trusting in my own sanity. And I had reason to trust in my own sanity because I'd been insane. I had gone mad when I was young and I had gone sane and I could tell the difference. I could see that, oh, it's, there's really isn't a problem. You know, there's a, an old Chinese saying, like, how, how do you know whether you're a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he's a man? I suddenly realized, no, you actually do know. Uh, you may not be able to explain how you know. You may not be able to reason out how you know, but you actually know. And so I, I, having faith was for me a, a, an act of trust in my own sanity. But it occurred to me after thinking about this, I, I answered that letter off the cuff as best I could, but I, it occurred to me after thinking about this that you hear this a lot in, in Christian circles that the change of Christianity is something that happens to you. It is, descends upon you. And while I have found in my personal experience it is true that God does the work of changing you, it is also true that you have to participate in that change, or at least you should participate in that change. I think God is asking you to participate in it. And it's like the old, there's a, an ancient Greek expression uh, that, that um, a hero is led by fate uh, everyone else is dragged by it. And I think that's true with God as well. I think a believer is led by God and everyone else is dragged by and they become part of his plan uh, no matter what choices they make eventually. But I was thinking in other religions, like I practiced Zen for a long time and I would recommend Zen to anybody. I don't think, I think you can do Christian Zen. I don't think Zen is antithetical to Christianity, but it's mostly a practice, a, what they call a praxis. It is a question of sitting and breathing, and it increases your intensity, increases your concentration, increases your focus, and it increases your intentionality. I think the intentionality uh, is, is probably what I'm thinking about. I wanted to think about things. As you know, my, the center of my faith is Jesus, and what I'm always interested in is what is he saying? What is he saying? What is he telling you to do? Uh, a lot of religion, I find, is, is based on drowning him out. It's drowning him out with theology. It's drowning him out with predictions. It's drowning him out with prophecies, but not listening to what he actually said. And so I want to focus on three things that Jesus tells you to do that you don't do. And the reason I know you don't do it is because I don't do it. <laughs> it's because most of us don't do it because it's very difficult, but it is something that you can bring intentionality to bear. Now, intentionality is focus. It means being in the moment uh, that you're living. One of the reasons I used to love flying planes. I, you know, I got a pilot's license years ago, and one of the things I loved about it, I found incredibly relaxing about it, was you are intentional. You are alert to the moment when you land a plane or take off a plane, especially, especially you're paying attention. Why? Uh, you can probably guess, because if you don't pay attention, you pancake into the ground, and then you don't come home. And so you pay attention when you're landing a plane, you are purely 100% focused all of the time. And it's it's incredibly cleansing. It, it cleanses you. You don't even sometimes remember it because you're so focused. You're not focused on remembering it. But through the rest of the day, you find it coming back to you. You find the experience coming back to you and it focuses you in other things. And as somebody who practiced Zen, I used to practice that kind of intentionality all the time. I would walk to work, say, and I would say, well, for the next 10 minutes of this walk, I'm not going to think anything. I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing, what I'm seeing, what's happening around me. Now, the kingdom of heaven, we learn in the Bible, in the Gospels, is a small thing. It's always described as a small thing. It's a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but it grows into this tremendous life-giving uh, thing. And, and that is 
I, I think that that is the intent that you bring, the moment of intent that you bring, even for 10 minutes a day, even for five minutes a day. So let me just read some of the things that Jesus says that I don't think we do, that most of us do, but w- that we can be uh, intentional about. Here he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. <laughs> By this time, you should be already laughing, right? Uh, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. I always love this, Jesus, like paying attention to the beauty of the lilies of the field and how just how beautiful they are just on their own. He says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you O you of little faith, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Anybody, any takers that you don't worry about, whether you're going to have enough money, whether you're going to eat, whether you're going to, you know, what you're going to eat, whether you're going to have enough clothes, all of these things. So, and is it, is it even good advice? Is it, is it even good advice? Don't we have to plan for the future? Don't we have to take care of our kids and make sure that they're going to have enough? Don't we have to put away money so we can send them to college where they can become leftists and hate us? You know, these are all important things that we do plan for and we do worry about and we care about and we pay attention to our health. However, however, he's telling you something. He's telling you you're not in charge. He's telling you that you are not running your life. Now, as I've gotten older, especially as I've look, had more life to look back on, I realize, and I, I think I've said this before, that life didn't go the way. You know, I, I proposed things, but God disposed things. And some of the things that I did that were uh, good things, I think, that were moral things, but they hurt me, that they cost me money, later came back and actually paid off in ways that I, I wasn't expecting. Uh, many of the things, uh, the corners I cut came back and, and hurt me in ways that I wasn't expecting. And so what he's, Jesus is saying is God knows what you need. He knows what you need, down to, down to the food that you're going to eat, the drink that you're going to get, and you're supposed to be thinking about something else. And if you are thinking about the kingdom of God and his righteousness, these things will be given to you as well. It's in other words, it's not a way of, of neglecting your life. It's not about neglecting your life. It's a different way of thinking about your life. These are things that you can actually do. You can actually in, be intentional about these things even for 10 minutes a day. Nobody is nobody except maybe a Zen master is always present. Nobody is always present. Most of us are lucky if we're present for a minute a day. You know, if you if you've ever stepped out in front of a car or had your life endangered, most people have had some kind of scary moment. You know the difference. You know the difference between being present in that moment before the you're not sure whether the car is going to hit you or not and the moment when you're walking around and your mind is on a thousand things. These are things that you can bring to bear. When I'm in church, for instance, there are a million things running through my mind. When I'm in church, you know, I'm thinking about all kinds of things, mostly about myself. I can stop. I can make myself stop. I can breathe myself out of doing that. And then suddenly I'm not worrying about uh, what's going to happen next. I'm not worrying about whether I'm going to get the attention that I want or the love that I want or the food that I want or any of those things. I'm suddenly paying attention to the fact that I am in communion, not just with God, but with the angels who are also in communion with God at that moment. And that is a way of ceasing to worry, if only, if only for a second. Another uh, thing, because 
Come, come on. I mean, if, if you are going to tell me, oh, yeah, I never worry about anything, eh, nah, I don't believe you. <laughs> Another story from the Bible, Jesus uh, walking on water. We have all heard of this, walking on water. Uh, and uh, Jesus walks on water, and the disciples see him, and they're terrified, and they think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it, don't be afraid. It's, it's me. Don't be afraid. It is I. And Peter says, well, if it's you, tell me to come. I want to walk on the water, too. And Jesus says, well, come ahead. And Peter Gets, gets down out of the boat. He walks on the water and he's coming toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this story always gets me because I think little faith, he's walking. He was walking on the water. That's a lot of faith to me. That is actually pretty impressive. So uh, it, it's not, doesn't seem to be little faith. But the thing with Jesus is when Jesus is on the scene, metaphor becomes reality and reality becomes metaphor, right? This is the way prophets behave. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet that the things he does are a metaphor because if they weren't a metaphor, who would care, right? These people are all dead. Peter is dead. Why would we have to care about what he did? We care because it means something, right? Now that Jesus is not, among us physically, his reality becomes metaphor again. And so we realize that, yes, Jesus, that Peter did walk on the water and Jesus did walk on the water, but now it's a story that has meaning in our lives. Everything becomes a story after a while. Uh, and, and so the story is what? Well, the story is every day that you're alive, you think that things are secure. You think you're walking on solid ground. You think everything's fine, but the truth is, right, at any given moment, it can all fall apart. Everything can fall apart and it will fall apart. At some moment, it will fall apart. At some moment, you'll get sick. You'll die. Suddenly, all the good things in your life will be gone. Everything will be that will be a memory. Everything that you should have paid attention to will suddenly come storming back into your mind. All the things that you should have been intentional about will storm into your mind. So there are three ways uh, to walk on water. One is in terror that the water is going to give way to you uh, give way beneath you any moment. Uh, that's what happened to me when I went mad. I suddenly became a hypochondriac of the first water. I was terrified every minute that I was going to die. And that, you know, this is obviously a long time ago. But it was a terrible, terrible experience to just think everything's going to die. The other way that you can walk on water, the second way that you can walk on water is by ignoring it, by denying it, they, what they call a famous book called the, by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, by pushing it out of your mind all the time. But the third way is the way that obviously Peter was doing it in the moment that he was doing it, is not focusing on the water and not ignoring the water, but by focusing on Jesus, by looking at Jesus and thinking, if I am looking at him, nothing, nothing can stop me. Another thing that you can do, five minutes for the day, you know, it's just some period in the day, instead of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down and land on your head. And, you know, I, I always, sometimes when I go to these churches that are not my, my church is kind of like an Anglo-Catholic church. That's what I, I'm, I look for. Uh, I look for a church that kind of has Catholicism, but isn't indebted to the Pope in Rome. Uh, and a lot of these Protestant churches, people get up and they wave their hands around and they make a, a show of, of being in the spirit and all this. And I'm not criticizing that. That's fine. It's not for me because for me, it would just be performative. I'm not feeling that. I don't feel that way. Uh, but but uh, what I can do and what I do try to do is at least for a moment, for some period of time to focus on the fact that, yes, this life is temp temporary. It's at any moment. The water is going to give way and I'm going to go sinking down. But my faith is that I'm going to keep doing that. If I can keep that in my mind um, for even even five minutes in a day, uh, I can do it for six minutes. And if I can do it for six, I can do it for seven. And who knows, eventually maybe I can do it for all eternity. And finally, the third thing that I wanted to bring up that we don't do is love 
your enemy. <laughs> okay? As Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your ma- enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, if you love your, you don't love your enemy because you're not going to have to kill him. You might have to kill him. You might have to defeat him. You might have to stand up against him. You might have to do all kinds of things in this world. But, but if you love him, if you actually love him, and that doesn't mean I love you, so I'm going to punch you out. It means I have to punch you out, but I love you, right? You will be more like God. You will be more like God. And this is something you can do. And it is something that I have recently started to uh, make part of my praxis. And it is an amazing thing to simply remember that the experience that the person across from you is having who hates you and whom you hate is the same experience you are having of being a creative force in the world, of someone in whom life is being created by your perceptions, right? You are seeing the things that you see. You're seeing the colors that you see. You're experiencing the love, the fear, the anger. So is he. So is your enemy. And, you know, sometimes I get these letters. A lot of times I get these letters. How can I convince my friend, my brother, my hated enemy? How can I convince them to agree with me? And I say, well, don't. Don't, because what would you say if they said, how can I convince you to agree with me? You would say, you're not going to do that. Instead, listen to them, love them, figure out where that's coming from. It may not change anything, but it will change you. It will change you. And those are things you can do intentionally that will increase your joy, will increase the presence of God in your life, and will increase the presence of God within you. I mean, he's within you already, but it will increase your awareness. Intentionality is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Walking down the street, loving your neighbor, not worrying, walking on water. Those are all things that you can do intentionally that will bring the spirit closer to you. Uh, and uh, and I highly recommend it because there's so much freedom and joy to be have and had through it. And as I keep saying, freedom and joy is what we're all about. All of which brings us to the mailbag. Chocolate, chocolate chip. Yeah! Chocolate, it's like Jeopardy, right? That's the answer to the question, what uh, flavor ice cream is that, Mr. President? Those probing uh, hostile questions that our fervent defenders of freedom in the press uh, always ask Joe Biden, where are you, Mr. President? I don't know. All right. From, this is the letter I opened the show with. Uh, this is from Sarah. She says, hello, Mr. Clavin, Lord of Authors, Master of Offending People and host of the best show on The Daily Wire. All true, of course. There's a question I've been pondering for a while now. I finally decided to go and ask you. I'm a female in my early 20s. A practicing Catholic, I'm also bisexual. I finally started to put myself out there in the dating game, and I'm worried uh, that when I end up telling a guy I'm interested in later on when we know each other better, that I have a fairly strong attraction to females. Uh, I've never acted on this attraction. I don't plan on ending up with a woman as a partner. I believe that God made me to marry a man and have children. Basically, I'm afraid that if I tell a guy all this, he'll be disgusted with me or dismiss the attractions I have as false. Should I be worried about this, or is this something I shouldn't even tell a potential suitor? I don't want to hide who I truly am, but I'm scared of heartbreak and rejection. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this, of course, any when you marry, you know, as you marry, as you go forward, as you are married, you're going to be attracted to other people. You know, in my case, it's, it's people of the opposite sex. In your case, some of them will be people of your sex. Uh, you're going to fall in love with other people. 
Uh, and you're not going to have those people. You're not going to have that experience. You're not going to have the experience of being in love. You're not going to have the experience of seeing your love through. You're not going to have the experience of following up uh, sexually because you're going to be committed to the person that you're married with. You are doing a thing. And I can testify to you. I can tell you from personal experience that if you do that and if you do it with joy and love, uh, you will be much happier and much freer in the end. And you only have to look at people who don't live that way to find out. However, there's things, there are little signals in this letter that sort of worry me a little bit. I mean, first of all, uh, are, are you indeed uh, bisexual? You say, I've never acted on this traction and I don't plan on ending up with a woman as a partner, which makes it sound like you want to experiment with this. Are you indeed bisexual or, or are you lesbian and saying you're bisexual? Uh, because it would be a terrible thing to marry a man and have... Uh, children with him and then suddenly say, no, I can't live like this. Uh, I have to live in a uh, lesbian relationship. That would be a terrible thing to do uh, to him and most especially uh, to your children. Uh, most guys, when you tell them that you are attracted to women, I would say about 75% of them say, hey, you want to do a threesome? Never do that. That is what they will. I'm telling you, every lesbian will tell you this. This is what guys say when they find out uh, that you have those attractions. Do not do that. That will ruin any relationship that you have. Uh, so I would say this. If you're truly bisexual, which means to me that you have uh, a uh, powerful attraction to men uh, as, as well as to women, if that is true, uh, then you have to understand that your marriage, if you want it to be a marriage, if you want it to be a good, successful, loving, productive, creative uh, marriage is going to be, is going to include in it desires that you are not going to satisfy. Everything you do includes desires that you're not going to satisfy. If you want to run in the marathon, you're not going to be uh, gaining 200 pounds. You know, you're not going to be taking the day off. You're going to be training for that. Uh, all, everything that you do that is of worth, that is of value, requires effort, and that's what the effort is going to be. When you tell a man, I would say, yes, you should be uh, fairly <laughs> well acquainted. It's not something you should bring up with <laughs> First date, it's something that, uh, you know, as you become intimate, uh, and I don't mean that physically, but as you become personally intimate, that is something that, you know, you might want to share about yourself. Uh, and if the guy says you want to do a threesome, run for the hills, because that's what you do not want to do. So listen, it's the question is, are you going to commit to marriage itself? Uh, that's the thing, because it's going to mean cutting off many parts of experience in order to have this one experience. It is this experience of commitment. Commitment always means cutting off every other thing. Uh, from Aaron, um, every time I leave a comment, some loser <laughs> who's never had a meaningful woman in his life or apparently doesn't appreciate the one that gave birth to him chimes in with some kind of inverse feminist evil that states all women are vile leeches who give nothing to earth and leech off men. This is a movement, right? I'm, I'm being told that it's called MGTOW, men going their own way, in which men say that marriage has now become a, uh, a one-way street, basically. Women get everything out of it, and so they're not going to do it. Uh, and um, we talked about this with Liz Wheeler, and her answer was, as Milton might have said, her answer was of a higher strain. I'll get back to that in just a minute, what Liz said. Uh, this guy says, it's absolute trash. His name is Aaron. He says, it's absolute trash from Satan, and I'm tired of arguing with people in the comments. Please dissuade them of their delusions. Thank you, Master Clavin, speaking, speaker of Clavin over the house of Clavin, upon which all Clavenites depend for guidance and for wisdom. Uh, okay, you know, last week I asked Liz Wheeler, I said, you know, I, I got 
married and in getting married, I, you know, made a commitment that meant not having other things, but I also got a home. I got someone to take care of me. I got someone who was going to raise my children full time. Uh, I got uh, the, a feminine influence in my life. And a lot of guys feel that they don't get this. Why should a guy get married if all he's going to get is a second income uh, that he wouldn't need if he were uh, alone? And she uh, talked about this in Catholic terms of being a marriage, you know, a, a taste of the experience of God's love for the church, which is of a high strain, and I actually agree with her that that is included in marriage, but it's not really uh, the physical rewards that we were talking about before. I mean, you can uh, have sex without getting married. Uh, you can have female company without getting married. What do you get for being married? And a lot of guys feel that because of feminism, they're not getting anything, and therefore, and they're just being used uh, as a, a cash cow, essentially, uh, and they feel uh, hard done by. And my answer to this is that I think that you're confusing feminists with women, which is not to say that feminists are not women. It is to say that women are not necessarily feminists. Life is not Twitter. Life is not Facebook. Life is life. Life is something that happens between people in a room together presently in three dimensions. And so a lot of these guys, I think, are living too much on the comment sections and not living enough in life. One of the things that can happen in a life is you can tell people what it is you're looking for, what it is you want. You can even do this online with some of the matching uh, things and uh, some of the matching um, websites. And, you know, there, there are people out there, as the old saying goes, there's a boy for every girl in the world and a girl for every boy. If what you are saying is women are what feminists portray them as, then I think you're being very foolish. I think that that is foolishness. Um, most women are... Like I said, they're they're looking for something that could be very much like what you're looking for. And maybe it's the if you're going out with people who are shallow, uh, who are greedy, um, uh, you know, that may be on you. I mean, I think it's I think it's a little bit juvenile uh, to be basically controlled by a media image of what women are. You are letting the left, which runs Hollywood, which runs the media, which even runs social media, you are letting them create your picture of who women are. I mean, every day I see women who are absolutely devoted to their husbands and their families and who bring uh, that incredibly invigorating and life-giving feminine influence into the lives of their husbands. I don't know why you should surrender uh, the search for that simply because you're being told that it doesn't exist and simply because you've met people who are shallow and selfish. Maybe, you know, I always say this to women when they tell me I can't find Mr. Right. I always say, are you Miss Right? You know, and I think the same answer would go to some of these MGTOW guys that say, well, if you're meeting people who are shallow and selfish, what about you? What are you putting out there that makes that attracts these shallow, selfish people instead of deep people uh, who want a kind of deep, the kind of deep relationship you pretend to be looking for? So, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you got to distinguish between activism and people. You've got to distinguish between the Internet and real life. And you've got to distinguish between this massive effort. Uh, massive cultural effort that the left is putting forward to turn their lives into reality. Uh, and one of the things, I just want to add one more thing because I've noticed this with guys who are younger than I am. I grew up in a world in which women were mostly moms, mostly homemakers, uh, and and so I didn't have that influence. But a lot of guys, because of feminism, grew up with a lot of lies. They were told that women were the same as them. They were told that women were as strong as them. They were told that they were a threat to women, but women weren't a threat to them. When they find out all these things are untrue, when they find out that there is a tension between male and female and that women are different than them and want different things and are looking for different things, uh, 
and and have different flaws and have a different set. There are a different set of female flaws than there are male flaws, typical male and typical female flaws. They are angry. They get angry. And I see a lot of this in younger guys. I see a lot of anger because they were lied to. Get angry at the people who lie to you. Don't get angry at the people that they lie about. That would be my advice. Um, from Hallie, uh, I absolutely love listening to your show and how you incorporate humor. Oh, I realize I'm running out of time. So she says, I have a question on dating and marriage as well. I've been a Christian my whole life and considered to be the most important thing I focus on. Uh, I know Jesus is supposed to be enough for me, but I want to be married and have a family. And that's that, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I've been attracted to guys and guys are attracted to me who aren't Christian. Uh, and then she goes on about this, Muslims, Hindus, all this stuff. Uh, I've also found the people I'm friends with who weren't Christians when we first met are now. Uh, and people are converting. What she wants to know, basically, is if it's a problem, would it be wrong for me to date men who are not Christians? It's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of productive or not productive. I mean, if you're looking to get married, if you're looking to have a deep relationship, um, and somebody is genuinely uh, a believing Muslim or a believing Buddhist, believing Hindu person, you know, that is going to be an obstacle to having a full marriage with children who are raised in uh, uh, some kind of benign agreement between you and your husband. And the thing that I think uh, comes off this letter to me is maybe a fear of, of being married. Um, you say that you've never been with a guy um, and maybe you're attracting men and going out of your way to attract men that you know you're not going to marry, uh, that you know are not right for you. Um, you know, I'm just putting that out there as a possibility that maybe you want to step back for a minute and say, am I ready to get married? Am I afraid of getting married? And if I am afraid, what am I afraid of? And do I have to be afraid? Or can I put that fear aside and start to meet the kind of guy that I'm actually going to really want to be with and not the kind of guy I'm going to be able to find an excuse to get out of? I got to stop there. Uh, I think that is a full answer to that question. I got to stop there. This means that the Clavenless Week is upon you. Uh, all the joy that you've been experiencing for these last few minutes of being with me, uh, it's over. Uh, all your joy probably is over. Uh, everything probably. I mean, it's just there's just darkness ahead. But if you look really, really far in that darkness, you will see, you will see that that Clavin Show, the Andrew Clavin Show, will be back again next Friday. This is the Andrew Clavin Show, and I am Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Dr. Fauci's book gets pulled off shelves two days after it was announced. The government continues to deny E.T., and a high school valedictorian in Texas dedicates her commencement speech to her zeal for killing babies. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.